people of Sake actually brought me into Sake. Back in 1988, this place was actually in Ginza on the main drag. At first, it was kind of soy sauce, it was miso. To the point where it actually changed my life. New Year's Day 1989. Uh, not just Sake as a beverage, but all the culture of this area. Hello, welcome back. Again, we're in the Information Center at the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association. This is the second session now of our Sake Future Summit 2022, held, of course, in January 2023. And we're going to continue um, on the topic of sake and its implications for sales and enjoyment and education around the world. Uh, we are, again, bringing together a diversely located and, and just plain old diverse panel of experts from around the world, people on the inside of the industry who are at the forefront of bringing new palettes and fans to this category. And it gives me great pleasure to, to welcome my new friend Weston to the show, who is going to be moderating. Weston, how you doing? Great. How are you, Chris? I'm, I'm very good. Um, what time is it where you are right now? So it's about 7.30 p.m. our time in the, on the East Coast. 7.30 p.m. your time, East Coast, yesterday, from my perspective. Do you need a weather report? I can tell you to what, what to look forward to if you need one. <laughs> that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, I can also give you the Wordle answer if you need it as well. <laughs> um, so, Weston, I'm going to just hand this right over to you so that you can get started so you have plenty of time. Um, folks in the audience, once again, please don't hesitate to leave questions and comments. We, will, we do monitor them and I will bring them around to the panel at the end of the session so that we can hear from these experts. Uh, without further ado, Weston, I hand it over to you. Uh, thanks, Chris. Thanks so much. And, and I'd like to extend a thank you, warm thank you to uh, Imada-san and our, our friends at JSS for this uh, incredible opportunity to take part in this year's uh, Sake Future Summit. I saw last year's summit and it was just really a wealth of information and, and we're so pleased to be a part of it this year. Um, so my name is, for those of you who don't know me, Weston Konishi. I'm president of the Sake Brewers Association of North America. Um, we're a trade association uh, dedicated to promoting and advocating for the sake industry uh, in North America. That includes uh, the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Uh, and we do this through a range of programs and initiatives, such as our uh, American Craft Sake Festival, which we had in Nashville, um, or Asheville, Tennessee, uh, Asheville, uh, North Carolina, um, last spring, um, and our Sake Stakeholders Summit, which we held in September in Washington, D.C. Uh, that was um, a gathering of key um, stakeholders and representatives from across the sake supply chain in North America uh, to discuss uh, the current state of the industry and where we want to take it in five to 10 years. Uh, it was really a very enlightening uh, uh, program. And um, uh, many of our, or two of our panelists tonight were, were at that. So, um, so that was a very, very interesting program. And we're also getting more and more into um, providing training uh, and development for sake brewers here. Uh, we'll be embarking on a training program in uh, at Gakkogura in Niigata Prefecture, um, scheduled for this coming summer for several of our sake brewers based in North America. Um, 
we're really interested in talking about today's uh, topic, um, um, making sake mainstream in the U.S. market. Um, sake uh, has, though, made great gains, I think. Um, I remember the days when you could pretty much only get mass-produced sakes um, in certain cities. Uh, that's changed a lot. I live in um, I live in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, I can just go to the the um, liquor store around the corner from where I live and get a, a really nice namagenshu these days. And so that that just tells you that that sake's come come quite far um, over the years. Uh, all that said, though, um, it represents just a fraction of the overall U.S. Um, alcoholic beverage market. According to some studies, it's just 0.2% uh, of the overall market here. Uh, and so I think you can safely say sake is still a, a niche product of sorts uh, in, in the U.S. market. There's not enough consumer knowledge and awareness um, still. Uh, and there's not enough, I think, marketing uh, in contrast to, to other categories. Uh, you don't see a whole lot of sake advertising in North America. So that all begs the question, what would... Um, bringing sake into the mainstream look like. Uh, and to me personally, uh, I'd love to see um, sake breweries in, in pretty much every state across the country and, and, uh, and at least several in some of the major cities. Uh, I'd love to see it on the shelves of, of pretty much all the, the good liquor stores and restaurants across the country, um, not just in Japanese restaurants and in major metropolises, but really uh, in, in other parts of the of the of the country as well. Um, and I'd love to see more consumers with a better sense of of what they really like about sake and about and and their sort of proclivities for and, and uh, particular tastes in, in sakes that they gravitate more toward. Um, and to have, I think, a better sense of of what they like in sake, especially in pairing with foods, not just Jap and not just Japanese cuisine. Um, so what do we need to do to break through to the next level? I think there's a lot of questions, to, a lot of answers to that question. Um, I'll just throw out a, a few uh, for consideration. I think, you know, obviously we need, I think, a broader consumer base across the country. Um, looser restrictions on selling sake across state lines and in local markets would be very helpful, and we are working on that at the association. Um, we need to continue to grow the number of craft sake breweries across the country, I think. That, I think, can lead to more access to high-quality sake at the local level. And um, and I think that as uh, as consumers in these local uh, areas become more exposed to sake in their in their neighborhoods um, and and their communities, they'll their uh, awareness and knowledge of sake will in turn increase. And I think um, so. There's a, a lot of opportunity there. I see. Um, we also need more effective marketing approaches that I think appeal to a younger generation of consumers. Um, you know, something that really targets their tastes, uh, their preferences, and, and, and in many ways, even their, their values. Um, so these are just, I think, some of the a handful of things that I think could bring sake more into the mainstream market. Um, so in that, in that light, I'm, I'm very pleased and, and happy to have three of our association members here um, tonight to uh, share their thoughts and insights and perspectives on this topic. Um, we have Matt Bell, who's CEO and president of uh, Origami Sake in Hot Springs, Arkansas. That's a um, brewery that's uh, still in development and, and um, going to be opening up soon. So it's very exciting. 
Uh, Nina Murphy, who's owner of a Sunflower Sake, a sake shop in Portland, Oregon, um, where she's doing a number of really cool and innovative programs to introduce sake to American consumers. And then finally, we have Pablo Rivera, uh, co-founder of We Sake, a, a new sake brand based in New York City. They brew their sake in, in Japan and, and can it and sell it in the U.S. market. Uh, so uh, with that, let's turn it to um, turn over to Matt Bell. Um, Matt, uh, you come from a, a, a successful business background, largely in green energy contracting and construction. Um, so I'd like to ask you what first got you into sake? What made you invest in opening a sake brewery in, in Hot Springs, Arkansas? Yeah, short, short of being crazy. Um... Uh, it was the introduction from Ben Bell, and uh, I'm a an Arkansas native. I was born and raised in Arkansas. I went to the University of Arkansas, and uh, by happenstance, I met Ben, who is no relation to me, um, at uh, um, a gathering, and he had just gotten back from Japan, and he had spent two years at Nambu Bijan, and he told me that uh, we had some mutual friends that had a, a brewery here in Arkansas, a very successful craft brewery. Um, and he said, I'm going to start a sake brewery here in Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, taking advantage of uh, the inherent values of Arkansas, which is we, we grow 48% of the rice in the U.S. And Hot Springs is renowned for the water. And, you know, his term to me was, you know, there's no reason Arkansas shouldn't be the Napa Valley of sake. And that just clicked with me back in 2016, honestly. And I never forgot it. And um, my business, I've had several businesses. I'm a serial entrepreneur. Um, and about a year ago, I knew I was going to sell the, the business I was in, the, the solar uh, development business. And this was the only um, business that came to mind that that I thought had um, brought a lot of uh, inherent values of, or inherent benefits of the state of Arkansas that we could bring to the nation and potentially internationally. That's great. What um, can you tell, elaborate a little bit more about what those inherent benefits are? Sure, sure. You know, as I mentioned, we have um, Arkansas as a state. The disadvantages are we are a very rural community and our state. We have about 3 million uh, people as far as our population goes, which creates a lot of um, challenges from a business perspective with, with only 3 million people in the state opening a tap room uh, for a sake uh, tap room is probably not a very smart business plan, right? So we had to look at this from a different perspective. And from our business planning, we looked at uh, doing this very large from the start. So our, our capacity at our brewery is about 800,000 liters annually. Um, and therefore, we, we plan on distributing throughout, you know, nationwide fairly quickly. Um, by being in the state of Arkansas, 48% of the rice is grown here our water resources are abundant and they're ideal for sake. Um, the, the city where our brewery is located is Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a national park with some of the most pristine water in the world. Uh, one of the best uh, international brands is called Mountain Valley Water. 
and they're using water from the same aquifer we're, we're sourcing our water from. It's a 152-year-old company um, that sells premium water uh, throughout the world. Um, with those combination of those two things, obviously that's the two key ingredients in making sake and then obviously great uh, staff and, and, and good branding. So, right. And you also happen to be uh, within shooting distance of Oregon, of, uh, um, of our friends, uh, the rice producers in, in Arkansas. Yes, well. Isabel Farms. So, Isabel yeah, Farms. so Isabel Farms, who many people on this, uh, uh, in this summit would probably be aware of, uh, they're about 70 miles from our location, from the farm to our brewery, um, which is very fortunate. They are, they have been growing uh, Sagamai for decades. And uh, actually just a couple of days ago, they won Arkansas Farm Family of the Year. Um, so, or, or no, I'm sorry, they've already won that. They won, uh, Chris Isbell was inducted into the uh, Arkansas Agriculture Hall of Fame. That's great. Well, it's well-deserved for sure. Great family, good people. Right. Um, so, um, but you you have all this business experience, and, and it's it's just striking to me that that um, you know uh, having all the business savvy, you looked at the sake industry and you said, "Oh, this." I mean, I, I have to assume that you thought there's a lot of a promise in that. Um, so, um, I'd love to get your take on on what you see are the the sort of from a, from a business perspective. What are the opportunities with the sake industry and and what do you see are sort of the main challenges and particularly as it pertains sure. to our theme tonight? Sure. I, you know, I'm probably the, the least experienced person in this business to, um, from a sake perspective. And my perception, uh, I was, I was very pleased to see the report, the study that you all commissioned SBA and a about the market research. It, it really validated a lot of the same, thoughts that I had about the market. When I was introduced to premium uh, craft sake, it was absolutely a different beverage than I thought of uh, growing up here in Arkansas and really 98% of uh, Americans. And um, we were introduced to sake back during the sushi craze and decades ago. And what was sent to the US was mass produced sake. And you hear of people, when you talk about sake, it's only warm and a sake bomb would come out. <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll, uh, they, they're just unaware in general of the potential of sake, right? And, and so it's changing that perception. It is, it's a heavier lift for us, but I think it's important for, uh, I, I, I think that the perception of sake, just having, that experience again one of your oldest memories is taste and smell and it's really hard to get somebody back when they try something they did not like the taste of or the smell of right it to try that again so it's it's really a reintroduction of sake is is what we feel like it needs to happen uh so we're focused on you know american palettes very diverse styles um and like you said our marketing and the breakdown of how we're going to market is more accessibility. The terminology, which I've recently learned over the past couple of years, you know, 
most Americans are not aware of. Uh, a nagori, for instance, or a junmai, or a junmai genjo, or a junmai daigenjo, those are insider terms. And they're a barrier for people that are going to shop at a retailer or uh, or they're intimidated on a wine list, right? So we're trying to simplify that and make it more accessible, similar to branding of, of wines. And that's kind of our approach. That's great. And I know that you're not yet um, um, producing um, and, and hopefully that'll be coming out soon, but do you have a sense yet of of just within within Arkansas of what uh, you know where people are in terms of the familiarity with sake? Is it's do, do do you see um, pockets of real understanding of sake, or, or is it still there's still quite a steep learning curve? There's, there's po- there there are pockets of it, but there, you know, we have had a couple of test batches that we've put out. Uh, and and had people sample right, and everyone, without exception, is absolutely blown away. And and the first thing they say, and 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 this is something that you you wouldn't necessarily see in a major market like New York or or uh, Los Angeles. There's more experienced palates, but here in the South and the rural uh, rural states throughout America, just trying to craft sake is probably their first experience they've ever had with it, and they would not know that was sake. And they're, everyone is pleasantly surprised. And, and, and to, the, to the degree that um, our distributor here in the state, they had 40 salespeople, and they were all not very excited about pull, picking up a sake line until they tried it. And they said, this is just nothing like we thought it was. And that's really what we're hearing throughout the state. Right. And I think that's true throughout many parts of America. Right. That's really great. And I will note that um, we're really happy to have quite a few now um, new sake breweries uh, sprouting up across the South. So um, it's really great to see, you know, um, sake breweries in Nashville and Tennessee and Lexington, Kentucky, and um, there's going to be some coming up in in Florida. So it's really um, a really dynamic region as a whole for sake, it looks like. So that's, that's really great. Um, thank you, Matt. Let's uh, maybe um, shift gears over to, to Nina uh, at this point. Um, Nina, tell us tell us about how you got into sake and, and some of your your plans for uh, sunflower sake. Thanks, Weston. Um, thanks also to the JSS and the Sake on Air for the invitation to participate today. Uh, it's always fun to talk about my sake origin story um, and to chime in on these subjects. So the complicated version of that story is that from a very young age, um, I was drawn to Japanese popular culture, like so many Americans. I grew up watching anime, playing video games. And when I was 21, my preferred beer brand was probably Kirin Ichiban because I thought the label was cool. I thought it was cool to drink Japanese beer. Um, At that time, like so many of us, I tried some sake. I think it was probably a California-made, mass-produced brand, and I thought it was pretty forgettable. So I stuck with beer and cocktails for a very long time. Um, And then I ended up getting into sake initially through food in my mid-20s. My husband and I loved cooking, and we bought a Japanese grill, and we hosted parties and enjoyed a lot of sake in the backyard. But... uh, Even at the time, $35 for a bottle of sake was a stretch. We were lucky to have a Japanese grocery store down the street so we could 
pick things at random and hope that they were good. And, um, but I think relatively early in my life as a result compared to most consumers. So my mid twenties, I was exposed to good sake and, um, and it was about that point that I learned that I really liked it. And I remember a few bottles from that time that completely shifted my perspective. Um, so the idea was plugged in the back of my head at that point that sake could be this quality thing. But in California, that's probably an awareness that people had earlier than in other places. Many years later, um, I moved to Oregon. I got into the wine industry. I fell in love with wine and I explored all corners of the industry. I worked as a harvest hand, as a viticultural intern, as a steward in tasting rooms. Um, and I even visited Katsunuma Yamanashi in 2020, which is a Japanese wine country. I was completely blown away by the quality of, of the wine there, but also of the sake. Uh, so my career kind of culminated in wine when I was uh, working for a wine distributor and um, I was sort of coming face to face with a lot of challenges in the wine industry at the time. And this was in a period, of course, in the pandemic, uh, which brought out kind of the worst and the, and the best sides of the industry. It was during the wine tariffs that we were experiencing here in the U.S., um, which was crushing to the hospitality industry at the time. Um, at this time, also the wine industry was undergoing the Me Too movement, which was calling out some of the largest organizations and figures in the wine world. Um, some of the most influential wine organizations in the U.S. came under fire, and uh, and it was necessary. It needed to happen. So um, it was in this context that. I rethought my career and I was deciding whether I wanted to continue in wine or whether I wanted to pursue my second love, which was sake and had been sake for a really long time. And for me, it was a really obvious choice to make because I felt that sake was a product that had incredible potential, completely unrealized potential. And um, it was a bright green and wide open pasture. You know, it's unlike wine, which is, you know, at this point somewhat saturated. Uh, it, there's a lot of rules around wine. There's a lot of um, pretension and, uh, you know, access issues. And now there's all these social issues that were coming up around wine. Sake was sort of this place where I could engage freely and create my own rules and potentially even create our own American culture and especially being exposed to Den Sake a couple of years earlier. And Den is a, um, a sake brewer located in Oakland, California. And trying um, his sake and being super impressed by it, I thought that just growth was inevitable and I wanted to be a part of it. Um, you know, anyone can say if you find this really, really special thing that's undiscovered or relatively undiscovered, you know, you think like, oh my God, like I need to share this with everybody or there's such a great opportunity here to, to, to make a career for myself. And that's really, that's really what happened. So when I decided to open up Sunflower Sake, it was as much about a passion for sake as it was a business opportunity. You know, there was a practical reason why I decided to go into sake and decided to open up Sunflower Sake. I felt like there was an opportunity there to do my own thing and to not have the competition that I saw in the wine world. Um, and so that's why I got this going and it's been extremely well received. I'm lucky here to be in a city that already has a thriving sake culture. We have a sake brewery that's been here for over 20 years, Sake One. 
It's located about 45 minutes outside of town. We have some extremely highly regarded sake professionals in Portland, Oregon. Marcus Pekizer is a sake samurai who has been working here for a very long, long time. And the overall market, like product awareness is relatively high in, in the Pacific Northwest, where I have consumers coming in who maybe know that basic terminology. They know the word junmai, they know junmai ginjo, or they come in saying, I like sake, I just don't know what I like. So I see myself and I see Portland, Oregon as being an example of what any city that's getting its sake brewery, its first sake brewery could look like in five years, you know, where the level of awareness and comprehension has reached a tipping point where people know they like it. Um, they're just looking for an opportunity to dive deeper and learn more. Because after 20 years of drinking the local brand, people are really curious to learn more and they're curious to engage with more Japanese brands and they're curious to um, experiment more with serveware and with food and with pairings and do all that at home. Yeah, and from my conversations with you, um, it, it seems like you, uh, and just looking at what you're doing on Instagram and on your social media platforms, like you're doing a lot of really innovative things to try to sort of really push that along, right? That, that you know, people's discovery of sake and deepening knowledge of it um, and, and, and sort of, you know, trying to maximize its uh, potential, um, especially in pairing with, with foods. Can you tell us a little bit more of some, some of your more recent projects in that regard? Yeah, absolutely. So I've done a couple of different things. I think one of the core issues for consumers who are curious and want to learn more is just a lack of access to education. Um, there's some resources online and there are some books, um, but the overall number and quality are still kind of is still a work in progress. So for me, starting with a financially accessible bi-weekly class that people can come in, pay 15 bucks, taste a range of high quality sake and sit down for an hour and learn about an interesting subject, that is the cornerstone of, of my educational outreach. And, you know, people can come in any time of the week and have a conversation with me about sake and get a flight and have the opportunity to learn something. But for those who want to dive deeper and want to really get to know the product more closely, these biweekly classes are an opportunity to do that. And because it's a low barrier to entry, you know, you can flow in and out of them as you see fit. And I see a lot of industry people coming into these classes and I offer a flat discount to all industry members to try and encourage their participation. Because as much as I want to educate consumers, trends really only catch on when industry members take an interest in them. You know, if for every sommelier who gets excited about sake, that will be another, their entire audience then will get excited about sake because they'll start to utilize sake in their tasting menus. Or for every wine buyer who decides to carry some sake in their shop, they are then going to evangelize to their audience. So for me, it's really about making these classes and lessons especially accessible and especially interesting to industry. And for that reason, they aren't necessarily like sake 101 classes. I'm diving into more complicated subjects bi-weekly that I think would be interesting and engaging for um, 
for an industry professional who has a background in wine or in beer. Um, the other things that I'm doing are I am partnering with some sommeliers and chefs and beverage professionals in the area to move the conversation forward with respect to sake pairing, to start making more resources available online that others can turn to if they want to Google, you know, how to pair sake with mole or, you know, in my case, the one of the class, first classes I did was how to pair, you know, experimenting with pairing sake with Russian American food, because that's my personal cultural heritage. Just making those resources available in English and putting them on the internet so that they can be found is something that will be of value perhaps to someone in another state, you know, a year from now. As long as those resources exist, people can find them. But if they don't exist, then everyone thinks that they're starting from square one. Um, I'm also hosting a festival later on this month, which is going is bringing in lots of, it's not just a sake festival. It's also a sort of festival that celebrates all of these other communities that are um, related to and kind of on the periphery of, of sake's culture. So, you know, that could involve like tea, that could involve um, food, of course, like different types of like Japanese cuisine, fermentation, and also love for the outdoors. I think that sake has a natural affinity for the outdoors because of its inherent seasonality, the seasonality of sake releases, and, um, you know, Portland's own love for the outdoors. So it's sort of a natural fit for us here, too. So those are a couple of different programs that I'm leaning into to try and make sake more accessible and exciting. and. Um, interesting to to our local consumers and to our industry members great i, I kind of wish i lived on the west coast so that i could take advantage of some of those <laughs> uh, those sound great um you know you were a participant in our sake stakeholders summit in september in washington and um and uh, i thought you 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 raised some really interesting points based on your experience uh working in the wine distribution um arena uh, and I was wondering if you had any, um, if you could share with our, our viewers tonight about some of the sort of observations you had um, taken from the wine industry um, and what how what what you see are the sort of do's and don'ts um, for the sake industry um, based on your experience in the wine world. So if you could share a few of those thoughts, that'd be that'd be great. Definitely. Yeah. So coming from the wine industry before this, I mean, it's not a mistake or it's not by accident that I'm no longer in the wine industry and I decided to move into the sake industry. And for me, it's because it's so much, there's so much opportunity here, but also because, so for me, one of the big lessons is, uh, well, I guess if we look at the wine industry right now, it's pretty fractured. Wine in general is in decline. So mass market wine is in pretty significant decline year to year, and it has been for a little while now. So it's kind of like how mass market sake has been in decline year to year. You know, it kind of mirrors that same sort of decline of uh volume produced beverages and the rise of craft beverages. So just like how premium sake has been rising, premium wine has been rising. And there's a particular um, subculture of wine or subset of wine that has been experiencing explosive growth. And for me personally at Sunflower Sake, it's an audience that I'm especially focused on 
because I think that there is a very natural fluid transition between this subcategory of wine and sake, and that's natural wine. So I came from, when I was in my wine career, I was at the end of it focusing primarily on, um, on selling natural wine to our local audience. And that's my community, you know, and, and those are my friends and those are the people who are kind of more at the forefront of uh, wine culture and creation in the US right now. So whether you like it or not, you know, like some, some people find it very divisive, but um, natural wine is, is what's popular and cool and interesting right now in primarily in big cities, but it's become mainstream enough that you can find natural wine bars throughout the US at this point. And you can find a glass of natural wine in every state in the US. So you can pretty much say that natural wine at this point has reached a point where it's, it's starting to like almost crest. You know, so it so happens then that to me, I think that sake is in a sake is such a perfect product to introduce to this same market. These are people who want an authentic story. They want an authentic product. They want traditional manufacturing methods. They want something that's environmentally friendly. Um, they want something with a story. And a lot of the flavors are also, they align perfectly with the tastes of the typical natural wine consumer, especially stuff like boraimoto or kimoto or namazake. So in my opinion, if you get a glass of sake in front of this consumer, it's going to click immediately. They're going to understand it. They're going to like it. They're going to be compelled by it. And they're going to want to learn more. Um, so when I look at wine for lessons. Like I said, I'm looking specifically at the areas of wine that are experiencing growth and doing well. And I'm trying to see where sake could slot into that. And there's a couple of businesses, there's a couple of uh, restaurants and bars in the US that serve as like kind of a testing grounds for this idea. One of them is Malay in San Francisco or Day Trip in Oakland. Um, they're both highly regarded. Um, you know, businesses in their respective fields, but for each of them, they've managed to hybridize wine and sake on their menu in a way that is completely compelling and feels totally natural. And if you go into these places, you'll get a flight that might have a mixture of wine and sake in it. And it feels like it makes complete and total sense. And I think that every major city in the U.S., every like place where it's cool to get a drink in the U.S., this is, has the potential to be a natural progression. So um, for each of those places and to get sake on, on the list of each of these cool restaurants throughout the US. I, so I try to look at these areas of success where this has been tested and where it's working as a benchmark for where sake has a potential to go and which styles I wanna focus on in my shop. And for me, which styles I believe I have the most traction with the same audience, which are usually the more interesting styles, like I said, like, or, you know, the more complex styles, I guess, the kimotos and the boraimotos and so on. Um, so that's one point. And then the other point that I take away from, from wine is successful marketing, you know, so wine, broadly, wine has been stuck in the past in terms of its marketing approach. You know, there's, in the 90s, there was a, a marketing approach that the wine industry adopted, which was based on like Robert Parker points, 100 point system, um, big, rich reds, really like, you know, big flowery language around describing the wines, uh, high alcohol, tons of flavor. Uh, and a lot of the wine industry is still using this terminology and this marketing approach. 
and um, they've completely lost touch with their changing audience. So it's the segments of the industry that are doing well that have learned to that that their audience has changed and are starting to market towards that audience with these messages of authenticity and sustainability. And um, and so I think that if sake wants to market effectively, that we should take an example from this this broadly wines failure to market to the current audience and um, and use our strengths to market to this to this more modern audience. Really, really interesting. Um, you know, in a lot of a lot of ways, I feel like um, Pablo, you're you're um, sort of taking some of those lessons, be they instinctively or 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 not, and applying them, I think, to your product. Um, it was really exciting to see your your launch of of We Sake. As I said before, it's it's brewed in Japan and it's canned, and then um, you're selling it here in the in the U.S. market. I guess you're based in New York City, um, and uh, I'd I'd love to hear about your story, how you got into sake, and um, and what made you um, launch We Sake. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks for the intro. Hello, everyone. Very excited to join and tell a bit more about our story and and our brand goals. Um, I like to tell my story as a bit of two sides, which one is passion for sake and the other is finding a market opportunity. So um, I, I spent six years doing venture capital for Anheuser-Busch and Beth uh, based in New York City. During this time, I had the opportunity to work with many different beverage brands um, and, and some that were at very different growth stages. Um, I believe that this allowed me to gain a lot of insight into the beverage business uh, and some of the biggest consumer trends in the U.S. Um, and then at the same, the same time in New York, I had a lot of exposure to the booming Japanese cuisine trend uh, and sake as a result, of course. Um, but made me realize that sake usually in this setting uh, tends to be perceived as formal, distant, and maybe somehow intimidating if you don't know too much about the category. Um, but I was lucky enough to to make a trip to Japan in 2017. I had the opportunity to see sake in a new way uh, and a beverage that you know usually is not only made for sushi restaurants, like it's it's mostly perceived in the U.S., but something that can be enjoyed with friends, family, and, and casually over any social occasion. Um, I especially had some great sake drinking experiences doing uh, bar hopping in Shinjuku, which was very fun. Uh, and this kind of made me realize that sake could could be an experience on its own, that it, it didn't necessarily have to be paired with food, but it was something that could be enjoyed pretty much in, in any setting and in a fun setting overall. So after this trip, I started to get very passionate about sake. Um, I became the person who always brought it to any social gathering in New York City. Um, one of the things that struck me right away was that I, you know, I was bringing this sake into all, all, all you know, social settings. Um, I realized that people really enjoyed it when I gave it out, uh, but they all told me that they didn't know anything about it or kind of felt intimidated by it. So with this, I kind of developed three questions that kind of led me into creating, creating this brand. Um, these three questions are made for non-sake connoisseurs. So uh, the general population and, you know, don't apply to people who already know about sake, but this was the experience that I was having having in, in my social setting. So the three questions go like this. So number one, I always ask, have you heard about sake? And the answer is always yes, which I believe talks to the massive awareness of the category in the US. Then I ask, have, have you had it and liked it? And the answer is almost always yes. 
which talks like a, a, about sake's amazing drinkability. Uh, but then I go and ask, hey, can you tell me a, a style, grade, category, or can you name a brand? And I always get a no, right? Um, so people, I think, that are a little bit still uh, not too much aware of, of, of what's going on in the category. Uh, and I think that this talks to the, the, the brand affinity gap that happens in the U.S. market. So with this in mind, I developed Wisake uh, with the sole goal of making sake easy, approachable, and something that could be enjoyed anywhere and anytime. We decided to go uh, do a Juma Genjo brew in a can format with approachability in mind, uh, as I believe that the brew is very easy to enjoy by complete beginners to the category, uh, but also enjoyable for, for season, by season sake drinkers. Uh, and also the can format, which was like a, our first introduction, we believe that it makes sake a little bit less intimidating to approach. Um, because of the design and the, the small format. Also think that the small format is, you know, allows consumers to, to go give sake a try without needing to commit to a full bottle. Uh, so making sake a little bit more accessible and approachable as well. So overall, what we're trying to do with sake is kind of reduce the barrier of taste through marketing and branding so that more people are willing to discover the greatness of sake. Um, we kind of think it without, you know, we want to, we want to get people to try sake and enjoy it without having to spend too much time learning about it before being able to enjoy it. So we kind of want to be the, you know, that entry point where people try sake and then they love it, then they go and, and learn more about it. Right. That's great. And you, you actually co-founded uh, We Sake with kind of a, a mega influencer, Brooklyn, Brooklyn Beckham. Um, uh, can you tell us, uh, you know, what, what he brings to the table in your, in your venture here? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and that has been very fun in the last couple of months. So I met Brooklyn over the summer uh, and we connected right away. Um, we, we shared a lot of the same passions. Um, we had a couple of nights out in, in, in LA and New York City. Um, we had a couple of really good sushi dinners as well. And we discovered that we had a shared passion for sake as a drink and you know how much we liked it. But also we spoke about, you know, the category, uh, you know, the massive awareness that it has, but the low brand affinity. So he was one of the persons that I asked a few questions to, and he was like, yeah, you know, I, I love sake. I love drinking it, but I, I cannot tell you anything about it yet. So, um, you know, we started uh, kind of with that same passion and, and, and knowing that, you know, there's a gap in the market and that we want to bring sake to a, to a big new set of consumers. Um, Brooklyn already had this huge passion for Japanese culture, uh, thanks to a couple of treks to Japan with his dad. And also he's really good friends with Chef Nobumatsuhisa, who has taught him taught how, to, how to do Japanese cuisine and, and, you know, teaching a lot about sake as well. Um, so, you know, he had the same passion as I do, and, and he thinks that, you know, he can bring it to, to, a, to a new set of people. I believe that, you know, Brooklyn brings a lot to the table thanks to his network and, and platform. Um, so, no, you know, he has a, a massive audience of about 50 million followers. And, you know, through this audience and channel, we're able to showcase sake to a lot of people now. Um, and, you know, so far, I think, you know, we're, we're excited to see that we, we already have about 4 million views on, on our branded videos. We, we actually developed an, an intro to sake uh, series in partnership with Sake School of America, who's also a member of, of, um, of the Sake Brewers Association. Uh, and that our intro to Sake video has already been seen about 1.7 million times in just a couple of weeks. Um, so I do believe that he brings 
you know, this, this part where we can put sake in front of, of so many more consumers. Also, thanks to Brooklyn, we're able to, to get some mass media outlets talking about sake, such as Forbes, Rolling Stones, and Interview Magazine. So I think this is, you know, this is a, a great opportunity, of course, for our brand, but overall for the sake category, because we can get, we're trying to get more people talking about it. Um, so yeah, super excited to have him on board um, and help us raise overall awareness to the category and, you know, supporting our vision of making sake a part of everyday life. That's great. It's a really interesting model too, because, you know, we, we, we sometimes think it would, you know, it'd be great to have sort of brand ambassadors uh, out there promoting sake. Um, and at least uh, in my experience, I haven't seen too many people of the sort of celebrity or sort of quasi celebrity status um, taking on that role. And you've actually managed to sort of incorporate um, so, such a person into your into your leadership. Um, I'm wondering, like, um, if if Matt or, or or Nina have any any reactions to that. Whether you think that's something that's replicable or something that that's that um, other um, socket producers and and brands should emulate. Or um, yeah, what what do you what do you make of that? Yeah, I, I, I'll just say I think it's brilliant. I'm, 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 I really do. I'm one of those 1.7 million viewers. I love the introduction from Rui Sake. It was great. Thank you. Um, we need more of that. Um, the problem is, as you know, Wes, is that from a craft brewery standpoint, budgets are definitely a concern. And for, for us to go out and get a celebrity um, endorsement would be cost prohibitive for most startups. Uh, and back to the point that we talked about at that summit was, you know, a way to, that we as a association uh, can band together and, and um, lift the entire category, not just an individual brand. I think there's value in that from uh, a, an endorsement that would uh, um, align with the values of sake for America, right? Um, and so I, I, I hope to see more of that. And I hope to see that, uh, uh, you know, we're excited about what we is doing. And uh, I think in general, it lifts all, all boats, right? So rising tide is, is, is great. Right. And we hope to contribute in the, in the, in the way we can as well. So. Absolutely. Um, Nina, any, any reaction to that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that most marketing initiatives these days involve influencers at each level, you know, so usually you, there's a certain number of people that you target that have, you know, between like a thousand and 10,000 followers, you're looking for some that are at higher, higher tiers of, of audience. And um, just like with any beverage category too, there's going to be different tiers of um, like, not quality, but like price point, you know, and, and level of like geeking and involvement and nerdiness and each of them is going to have an audience that is appropriate for them and each of them is going to have a subset of influencers or um, celebrities or, or whoever that's appropriate to reach that audience so while you know like if you're planning on launching a brand that's going to be like you're seeking wide acceptance in the market and you're seeking like a brand new audience then partnering with a celebrity such as Brooklyn is awesome and like Matt pointed out rising tide absolutely raises all boasts additional awareness and excitement and conversation around this category is good for us all you know sake on the whole is something that's widely recognized by consumers throughout the us like you pointed out both 
Matt and Pablo, like everyone knows the word sake in the U.S. So we're not we're not reaching to a point for people to become aware of what sake is. We're trying to redefine it within our respective categories. We're trying to recontextualize it as something that's quality. And that's been done before by Rosé, by tequila, by mezcal, by beer, you know, coffee. Like this isn't the first time a category has been associated with, you know, low quality or not being tasty or being poorly understood and trying to be recontextualized as something that's high quality. So I appreciate that someone has the resources to be able to attack that larger chunk because that's definitely something I wouldn't be able to do. But if it was me who's trying to like attack my own little corner of the market with, you know, these like niche imports that I have behind me that I have to hand sell, but I'm excited to hand sell. I'm going to look to, you know, local sommeliers, local restaurateurs, um, these other figures, like people who are popular, like hot distributors and importers in the U.S., um, like Zevrovine and Skernik, who are working with sake and like making it cool and getting it in front of the cool and really influential buyers and sommeliers in America. Those those are the outlets that are tangible and understandable for me and accessible for me. And so that's for me what I would be looking at, but it takes every level, you know, it takes influencing every level for the whole thing to work. Absolutely. You know, I, uh, earlier when I was talking about um, what, what going mainstream or, or, or making sake more mainstream would look to me, these are very personal sort of my own, my own sort of take on that. And I, I wonder if you know um, if you all um, have different ideas of what that looks like. Um, I'd, I'd be interesting interested to hear from from each of you uh, what what you think when we when we talked about making sake mainstream or more mainstream. Uh, what does that really constitute? Um, I can imagine that for different people that means different things. Uh, I think Matt um, earlier when we had our our uh, kind of practice session, you you said you. You'd love to see, um, you know, the 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 market share grow from where it is 0.2 percent to something more like two percent. Um, that's I think that's a really that's a really reasonable goal. Um, do you have? Do you want to talk more sure. about? Sure. I, you know, I think um, we in this industry understand how undervalued sake is as a, as a beverage, right? And um, Americans typically um, consider drinking sake as an experience that they enjoy at a sushi restaurant. And just changing that, you, you know, you go from 0.2% to 2%, that's a tenfold increase. But what percentage of sushi restaurants are American restaurants, right? <laughs> it's probably less than that, right? So just getting outside that market share to any restaurant that serves wine by the glass um, and introducing that and and having to educate, you, you do have to educate, right? You have to educate how to pair it uh, and what it pairs well and what styles go with with what. But that's fairly easy with sophisticated um, sommeliers, right? They understand it once they taste it. And that's really where a lot of our focus is going to be, right? It's just expanding uh, the on-premise sales. It, outside of typical Asian cuisine. Pablo, what are your thoughts on yeah. this? No, I think the same. Um, you know, I, I bring it down to, you know, what it looks for me and, and it's a little bit of our goals as well is for me and, and being based in New York, 
um, you know, I love drinking sake and, and you can only drink sake in the Japanese places, right? Um, or, you know, there's some amazing sake bars in the city as well. But for me, it looks like being, having sake on the menu, right? On, on a lot of the places that I like to go and, and, you know, New York has a, a massive offer of bars and restaurants. Um, and I want to see sake as an option there. And that's what we're working towards, right? We've been, we've been lucky to get it into some, some spot that are not Asian related whatsoever. And they're, they're, they're more like, you know, social gathering places. Um, and that, that's what I want to see, right? I want to see sake as, as an option, uh, in, in more places that are not only necessary Japanese cuisine. Um, and I think it, it, it fits so well, you know, every time. And, and I think Matt and Nina were saying it, uh, as well, you know, every time you get someone to try uh, good and, and premium high quality sake, you know, the reactions are amazing. Like everyone is like, oh my God, I, I, I can't believe that I'm not drinking this more. Like it's, it's so easy to drink, so enjoyable. I think that as, as, as Matt was saying, a lot of people are uh, sticking to the idea of, of warm sake at a hibachi place, maybe like that was the first introduction to sake. But when they try, a, a, you know, a really good brew, they're like, oh my God, this is, this is so good. So that's, you know, that's what I want to see. That's what I, we're working towards and trying to get, you know, again, as I mentioned, uh, reduce the barrier of taste, uh, get more people to consider sake as an option, because we know that, you know, once they try it, they're going to like it and, and, you know, we'll definitely be able to integrate it into the lifestyle and, you know, overall making sure that sake is an option for, for, for consumers. And, you know, that's, that's the way that we see it. Um, just beaming in from Tokyo real quick, um, just to make sure that we get a couple of questions in here. Sorry to to barge in on your conversation. I, I like where this is going. And if I may be so bold, Weston, as to impart a, a question here um, for uh, uh, Pablo was just speaking before, so I'm gonna stick with him. There's a question in, on YouTube from Harold Durop asking um, where, you can, where the canning of your products takes place. Is it in the US or is it in Japan? Yes, so um, we, we had a couple of options, right? When we were developing our product, uh, one was canning in Japan or in the U.S. Uh, what we realized through our, um, you know, consumer testing and what we were developing the product is that the only option that we had for cans in Japan were the ones where the whole lid comes off, um, which we we like as a as a format for serving and sharing. Uh, but when we tested out as a ready to drink kind of beverage, a lot of consumers didn't didn't like the experience of of pulling the whole thing. Um, so we decided to find a way to, to get a, you know, a, a, a can that, that resembles maybe a beer can with, with the, where the lid stays on so that people can drink it right out of the can, um, especially thinking on summer settings and more that you can take it, uh, you know, focusing on portability that you can just open and, and drink it there. So we import our sake from Japan, from uh, Kobe, and then we can it in California uh, for that That's reason. It. So, so that we can, we can use that type of can. Understood. And this is a follow-up question from the same viewer. They're, they're wondering if you have any plans or would it be possible to can product that is Nihonshu sake that is produced in the United States since you're canning in the States? Yes. Um, you know, the, the reason that we were sticking to, um, to Japan right now, it's, it's just how we wanted to, to communicate our brand at the beginning. As I mentioned, I, I think that, you know, a lot of consumers believe that Sake should only be brewed in Japan, which is completely mistaken. And, and as Matt is saying, and, and working with origami, there's 
an amazing amount of, of, of craft brewers in the U.S. that make some amazing brews. Uh, but for us, from the approachability standpoint and, ma and making communication easier, we thought that to start, it was easier to communicate that it was, it was a product uh, brewed in Japan. Um, but we're not close to the idea to bring in the U.S. whatsoever. I think, uh, you know, there's amazing brewers and, and you know, it's definitely an option for us. Fantastic. Yeah, there, there's actually several of, of our uh, brewers that that um, produce canned products here in, in the states. Um, uh, Sawtell in, in LA, Humstamon, mm -hmm. Wetland Sake in New Orleans. Um, I believe Father Star Sake um, in Massachusetts makes a canned product. So uh, th it's definitely out there, and I encourage um, the viewers to, to check them out. Yeah. All great recommendations. Over to Origami Sake for a moment. We have a comment, um, a recommendation. I guess this can lead to a question. The comment or the advice also from Harold on YouTube is to turn um, what you are creating into some form of a destination location, whether that involves a restaurant or maybe it even has a glamping opportunity or some sort of, of hotel connection. Is anything like that in the works? Yes and no. Um, I can tell you that we are going to, we have a tasting room and it is primarily for education purposes uh, to educate industry professionals. We don't have necessarily a bar there or food at this location. It is a uh, industrial uh, manufacturing facility. It's an old FDA approved facility. It's uh, 25,000 square feet, fairly large. And it's really not convenient to foot traffic. That being said, Hot Springs is a tourist destination. The, the city in itself is, and uh, it's the oldest national park, uh, city national park in the U.S. Um, has great, um, you know, hot springs tourism, spas, fabulous hotels, a casino, and a horse track. So around that, we are going to start planning different events throughout the year that pair with local uh, restaurants, uh, likely we'll have a tasting room uh, in the central business district, which is downtown in Hot Springs. That's more convenient for people to come uh, and visit. Um, and um, and then annual events around, you know, um, Arkansas Derby. It's, it's one of the highest purses in American horse racing. Uh, I think it, it might be the largest purse right now. So a lot of, a lot of different things that can happen around that. We're excited about. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to see how that all comes together. Fantastic. Um, I, with the a final, maybe a, a last question that I'd like to bend in Nina's direction and, and maybe uh, Weston, you can chime in on this as well and, and lead us out of the session. Uh, how, how, and I think this is a question that many people that are either in the industry or adjacent to the industry are curious about, but how do you explain what is a quote unquote good sake to people? Um, because you're, you're, you're dealing with customers all the time. I'm very interested to hear your take on this. Um, and again, Weston, feel free to chime in as well, but, uh, Nina, what, what's your, what's your general avenue on this question? Uh, well, my answer is probably going to be just a non-answer and it'll be frustrating. And my answer is that, um, it's totally subjective. It's just like with wine, what's, it's going to be different for each person. It's going to be different depending on the day, depending on the mood, depending on the environment. Um, and I think that tastes evolve a lot. You know, when I first started drinking sake for me, the only thing that I thought was good was 
you know, a namazake from Japan. And so now I think that a whole wide range of sake are good and it depends on my mood on that given day. So I think that to, you need to define good for yourself and um, that requires tasting and experimenting and uh, being open-hearted and engaging with a product on a regular basis with, with open, an open mind. So only you can define good for yourself. Very fair. Very fair lesson. I mean, I would define good sake uh, as anything that doesn't give you a bad headache. Um, <laughs> and beyond that, I mean, I think one of the beauties of sake and something that we all know, um, those of us that love it, is that it's it, there's such a variety to it. I mean, there really is. It's It's just... It's great that you have light-bodied sakes and heavy-bodied sakes and dry sakes and sweet sakes and you know in the, in the states we see quite a few uh, flavored sakes. There's a sake I tell people for everyone a, a sake mm. for um, for every for every you know um, type of person I think. And if you you know there's a sake for everyone if they if they give it a try. And and so that to me is 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 what I think is one of the great attributes of sake, um, and I think that's the sort of fun and the excitement and the potential of sake moving forward is that we have this incredible sort of range of products to to you know to introduce to to American consumers, and I and I'll say that like you know. Um, when when they can when they can test all these things and they can figure out you know which are the ones that they most like and they most gravitate toward that's a really exciting thing, um, and 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 it's really it's you know it's really great to see um, you know when we had our American Craft Sake Festival for instance in, in at Ben's American Sake in Asheville, uh, we had um, kind of our first kind of people's choice sake competition. And the two co-owners were Islander sake from from Hawaii, which makes a very classic style Japanese uh, sake, and the Void sake from Lexington, Kentucky, which makes um, you know uh, really fun uh, flavored sakes. Um, and you know, I think that speaks to the incredible range of sake again. And and you know, it, it's great that people can choose you know, where in that spectrum they want to, um, to try sakes and, and, and really invest in them. So that's, that's to me, a very exciting thing. It is. It's, uh, it, we're just getting started. It feels like there's so much more in store. Um, and thank you everybody, everybody on this show right now for everything that you're doing in your own way, in your own niche of the market to, you know, wake people up to the beauty in this category and to, to create, you know, more joy for everyone, uh, whether, whether it's, you know, sitting on the porch, drinking sake in the afternoon, um, taking a hike with cans of sake in their rucksack or, you know, pairing with any type of cuisine from around the world. And I think that's something that we're just getting started with. So thank you, um, everybody. And, uh, for now it's, it's goodbye, but, uh, yeah, um, I think I'll, Weston, if you have any final comments, I'd love to let you uh, sign it off and then I'll transition to the next video. Well, thanks, Chris. Um, no, I don't, not, nothing um, beyond what we've already talked about. Just a, a big thank you to, to you and to JSS and to our um, panelists here tonight. Um, this was really a great opportunity to showcase um, 
uh, North American sake and, and with with a broad audience, and it's just super exciting. And uh, uh, this is just a great program. So thank you so much. No, thank, thank you, Wes. You. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, thank you, Matt. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, everyone. And thank you, Pablo. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you. Bye. And so that will do it for one more episode of Sake on Air. If you have any questions for us, you can reach out to us at questions at sakeonair.com or get in touch with us uh, by searching for us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The show is brought to you uh, with the fantastic support of the Japan Sake and Shochu Makers Association and more often than not, broadcast from the Japan Sake and Shochu Information Center located in the heart of Tokyo. We'll be back in just a couple of weeks with a brand new episode of Sake on Air, so please do stay tuned and come by.